I mentioned this Wednesday, and I posted a, a Facebook message. I don't really do much on Facebook, but uh, it is helpful for this. Um, I am talking about adultery today, and uh, I'll be talking about marriage today and what goes with marriage. And so, not trying to be indelicate, I, I just wanted to give parents of young children a heads up, because I'll be talking about uh, one of the wonderful benefits of marriage. And uh, again, not using graphic language, but wanted to give parents a heads up. So if you didn't catch it on Wednesday or my Facebook message this week, now you know. All right? Let me pray. Father, your word tells us that all scripture is breathed out by you and is useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness. Father, we plead, we beg in Jesus' name that you would correct us that you would train us, that you would rebuke us if needed, that, Father, you would teach us from your word this morning. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. I I pray for any who are in sin today, who are not being faithful in their marriage covenant. Move them to repentance. Move them to trust in Jesus and to seek by the power of the Spirit to put the beautiful gospel on display through their marriage. Father, I pray for our children that when they see our marriages, they would see the gospel and that it would open the door for gospel reclaiming opportunities. Lord, through your word, as my brother prayed already, uh, may it be a healing balm, an ointment to our souls. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Um, Still moving through the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20.14, the title of my sermon, Kingdom Rules, that's kind of this mini-series that we're looking at in the Ten Commandments, an attack on the glory of God. That is what adultery is. It is an attack on the glory of God. And here's the big idea. Protect your marriage and glorify the Lord. Protect your marriage and glorify the Lord. Our culture is obsessed with sex. It's everywhere, from ads to movies to music And not just sex, but sex with no bounds. Sex between married and unmarried, between men, sex between women. What the Bible declares to be strange and wrong and sinful, our culture, our world, seeks to normalize. And what's the result of that? What's the result? The result is improper sex doesn't seem to bother us as much anymore. The culture and our society has progressed beyond recognition, and this has even had an effect on many in our churches. In 1963, when Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor, these were Hollywood's elite, when they began an affair during the filming of Cleopatra, they were shunned. As a result, they were shunned, and Elizabeth Taylor was condemned even in Hollywood, for stealing Burton's affections. Now, the reason I share that story, that that, that made big news, big headlines in 1963. There was outrage. I think today this probably wouldn't even make headlines. Many in our culture would say, what's the problem with that? Our culture has come, our world has come a long way, and sadly, so have many in our churches. What used to shock and sadden and anger now appears normal. Lord, help us. Amen? 
I want us to answer several questions, five, five this morning. Here's number one. What is marriage? Let's go to the drawing board and let's remind ourselves, what does Scripture say about marriage? What is the purpose, number two? So we're going to define marriage, number one. Number two, what is the purpose of marriage? So once we've defined it, let's answer the question together, so what? Why? Why marriage? What's the purpose? Number three, what is adultery? That's what the Lord forbids in the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. So what is adultery, number three? Number four, what is at the heart of the seventh commandment? And then number five, our last question, how does the gospel speak to adultery? So number one, what is marriage? And hopefully if you're married, you know the answer. You've thought about this. You know, if I asked you and you're married, what is marriage? I would hope that you can give me a biblical definition. So what does the Bible say first? And if you're taking notes, I didn't include this, but this is a very terse definition of marriage. Marriage is a complementary covenant union between one man and one woman. Okay? It's a very basic definition, biblical. Marriage is a complementary, it's a covenant. Covenant union, you could insert relationship between one man and one woman. Okay, so... Genesis 2, 18 to 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And brought her to the man. I I love this part. Okay, so this is the climax of the text. Then the man said, This, (laughs) this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The man and the woman fit together. They complement one another. Amen? They were made for each other. Husbands, look at your wife and say, babe, you were made for me and I was made for you. Take, Take time. Now, as described earlier, This complementary relationship between one man and one woman is a covenant bond. Now, we've talked about covenants. What is a covenant? You could say it's a relationship, sure. But in a covenant, you had two things. How many? You got two. And we see this throughout Scripture. First, there's the verbal oath. Okay, so that's number one, the verbal oath. What's an oath? It's a promise made, a commitment. Okay, so it's a verbal oath. Secondly, you have what's called the ratification sign. Now, that sounds crazy. What is a, Chris, what is a ratification sign? I'm going to define it for you, but just hold on. Covenant oath and ratification sign. Good. Okay, so the ver- now we all know the verbal. We've all been to weddings. Who's, been, who's married right now? Married, raise your hand. You've been to a, a wedding, raise your hand. Okay, so 
the verbal oath is the vows or promises made between the two parties. These are the I do's, right? This is what you're committing to do, right? The, the pastor will say a few things, promises essentially, right? Through thick and thin, health and no health or bad health. Are you committed, brother? Yes, I am. I do. In the whole church, or again, if, if you have a smaller wedding, maybe it's just family gathered, but those in attendance, they hear that both parties are saying, I do, I'm committed, I'm in. Does that make sense? But then you have the ratification sign. Now, in other covenants, I mean, this was a bloody ceremony. Animals were killed. That's not what happens when we get married. I mean, I don't think any, now maybe if you have a big wedding, uh, what's the thing you call after that? The, the reception. I, man, words are escaping me today. It's not good. It, animals are killed for the reception, sure, but not for the covenant. Covenant oath, the I do's, the ratification sign is the sexual act. It seals the deal. The sexual act seals the covenant. Kevin DeYoung writes, since the sexual act is meant to be private, a husband will kiss his wife during the wedding ceremony as a stand-in for the official oath itself. But make no mistake, the act of sexual consummation signs and seals the covenant. Now the fruit, what is the fruit of this consummation? Children, right? And this brings us to our second question, number two. What is the purpose of marriage? What's the purpose? The purpose of marriage is to glorify God. You thought I was going to say children. That is one of the purposes, and that's one of the ways that we glorify God. But the overarching purpose of marriage is to, it's to glorify God. This happens, one, through childbearing, which is clearly a purpose for marriage. The creation mandate. This is Genesis 1.28. It states, be fruitful, multiply, and fill. Fill the earth. The call, now this is good, listen, the call to be fruitful and multiply and fill is ultimately a call to spread God's glory across his good creation by producing more image bearers, right? More image bearers means more glory to God. We're made in his image. Be fruitful, multiply, fill, spread my glory across my created world, God says. This is why homosexual marriage is not marriage. Two men cannot complement one another, nor can two women. The two do not and cannot fit together. Therefore, two members of the same sex cannot fulfill the creation mandate. It is a biological impossibility. It cannot result in childbearing, which at its heart has God's glory as its ultimate goal. Now, this is helpful. Scripture, again, what is the purpose of marriage? Well, one childbearing, amen? Make some more image bearers. For my glory, God says, and spread out, fill the earth. But Scripture, God's word provides us with two paradigms, two living pictures for understanding marriage. Maybe you've never heard this. This is going to help you today. What are they? What are the two biblical images, the two biblical examples that God gives us in his word by which we can better understand marriage? Number one, the triune God. Number two, the gospel. 
God and the gospel help us to better make sense of marriage. Amen? Now you're thinking, how does that work, brother? This is an argument from the Trinity. Okay? So pay attention. The fellowship and the union and joy between a man and a woman in marriage is to further reflect the triune nature of God. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have enjoyed eternal, united fellowship. Amen? Now, where am I going? Keep checking with me. Just pay attention. Listen, this is so helpful. In Genesis 1.26, God says, Let me, no, let us. Who's he talking to there? I, I believe the Trinity, right? This is the Father and the Son and the Spirit deliberating together. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. He then creates a male and a, a female, Adam and Eve. Why? Oh, this is good. You ready? Because in the Trinity, we find both unity and diversity. Christians believe in how many gods? One God. In three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In marriage between a man and a woman, there is both unity and there's diversity. This doesn't work with two men or two women. And this further speaks to the permanence of marriage as a lifelong monogamous relationship, a lifelong monogamous commitment and union. And this further speaks to the honor and privilege of marriage. Friends, in marriage, we get, everybody say we get. We get to put God on display. We get to reflect the triune God in whose image we've been made. Amen? I mean, that really, I, I think it infuses marriage with grand purpose. Are you telling me, Chris, that in my marriage to my wife, I get to put God and his glory on display? And the answer is yes. Yes. Marriage is intended to reflect God and his self-giving love. And this is seen most clearly in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So now we've looked at the first example, an argument from the Trinity. Second, an argument from the gospel. Now, I've done a lot of weddings, and I always preach the same text. And it's Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. Wives, submit your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. This is just a great passage to listen to. Husbands, I would encourage you, wives, read this together every week. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands. Where my husband's at? Hey. <laughs> Was that Max? Hey. Was that you, Max? That sounded like you, bro. Hey. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Oh, Donnie, right, brother? You're the poet, man. <laughs> that he might sanctify. See, you won't get those funny jokes unless you're here on Wednesday night. So, more incentive to come. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Why? So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, 
that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we're members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery, Paul says, is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. All right. According to Ephesians 5, 22-33, Christian marriage is intended to serve as a living picture or paradigm of the relationship between Christ and the church. It is to showcase the gospel. It is to display the gospel. That's what marriage is meant to do. That's the mystery. The husband is called to sacrificially love and lead his wife as Christ does the church. And the wife is called to joyfully submit to and respect her husband as the church does to Christ. Paul says in these verses that the husband-wife relationship is to be a living picture of the Christ-church relationship. For example, in Ephesians 5.25, Paul entreats Christian husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, here's the kicker. Christ and the church are not the same, are they? Are they the same? Of course not. Therefore, now follow me here. In order to depict this relationship, two different sexes must be joined together in marriage. Two different sexes, a man and a a woman. Two men can't depict this relationship, neither can two women. The two differentiated sexes are to, what's the word? Complement one another. God's, listen, God's purpose for marriage simply cannot be upheld in a same-sex relationship. Our our definition of marriage is germane to the gospel. It is germane to the gospel. If we get marriage wrong, the gospel's lost. It's lost since the purpose of marriage is to display the gospel, to showcase it for all to see. Amen? I mean, what a privilege. Okay, let's just step back. In marriage, what is the purpose of marriage? Have children? Yes. Spread God's glory. Put the triune God on display. Number three, put the gospel on display. Whoa! I mean, is marriage incredible? What a blessing that we get to do those things. In sum, let me summarize. In sum, we see from Scripture, I hope it's been clear, that marriage is a permanent covenant union between one man and one woman for the purpose of God's glory by having children, reflecting the Trinity, and showcasing the the gospel. Marriage is huge! It's huge! Marriage is one of the primary ways that God's people are called to act out the good news, and honor the Lord. How dare we downplay marriage or devalue marriage? 
This covenant relationship must be guarded. It must be protected. It must be cultivated. It must be treasured. There's so much at stake here. Men, this is for you guys. I want to share a quote with you that has driven my marriage for 12 years. I think about this quote all the time, Dave. All the time, brother. It's from R. Kent Hughes in his little commentary on Ephesians. And this is what he said. I read this years ago. He poses the question, is our wife, husbands, is our wife more like Christ because she's married to us? Paul, man, that's that's sweet. That's, that's heavy. I feel that, brother, right? I mean, is our wife more like Christ because she's married to us? Husbands, ask this question often and ask it to your wives. Babe, do you, do you love Jesus more because you're married to me? The marriage relationship is to be seen as a training ground. We, I don't have time to unpack it the way I want to, but I'm going to unpack it a little bit. The marriage relationship is training ground, and we see that in Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Let's make a few observations. Toward what end, towards what end does Christ love the church? The text says that she, the church, might be presented before Christ in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, and that she, the church, might be holy and without blemish. Everybody say holy and blameless. That's the goal. Christ loves his church toward that end. That she, the church, might be what? Holy and blameless. So, this is good. The end goal of Christ's love for the church is the same end goal for a husband's love for his wife. Why do I love Haley? Toward what end? That she might be holy and blameless and prepared for the king. I'm not her king. We have the same king, and who's that? Jesus Christ. As husbands, we are to prepare our wives for the king. Our goal is to see our wives presented as holy and blameless before King Jesus. Wow. Amen? (laughs) May we love our wives in such a way and towards such a worthy goal. Men, how are you doing here? How are we doing here? Does your wife love Jesus more because she's married to you? How are you, brothers, preparing your wives for King Jesus? Wives. Let me speak to the wife for a minute. Are you joyfully and willingly coming under the godly leadership of your husband? Are you respecting him in a way that is analogous to the church in Christ? Married couples. Where are you? Married couples. Is the glory of God driving your marriage? Are you seeking to display the triune God and the gospel in the way you love and care for one another? Number three, what is the enemy of marriage? What is the great enemy of marriage? Adultery. Number three, what is adultery? Now that we've set the groundwork, I think we've done that, we've set the groundwork What is adultery, and why is it such a big deal? Again, the point I was making at the beginning is that in our culture, it's becoming less and less of a big deal, right? I mean, most people don't even bat an eyelash anymore. Like murder, 
We talked about this last week. Like murder, which seeks to destroy that which is intended to honor and glorify God, adultery is an attack against the sacred union, marriage, that is intended for the honor and glory of God. Adultery, simply put, is murderous to marriage. It is murderous to marriage. Think of it this way. If Christian marriage is intended to display God's covenant faithfulness, then adultery, the act of marital unfaithfulness, is to be seen as an attack on the glory of God. Can you think of anything worse than attacking God's glory? I I can't think of anything worse than that. Adultery is the selfish act of undermining, usurping, and sabotaging God's wonderful purpose for marriage. You know, Doug Stewart writes, and this is a helpful, it's a little bit long of a quotation, but this is helpful, especially the middle part. He talks about marital fidelity, marital faithfulness. That, that's the purpose. That's, that's what God is calling us to in the seventh commandment, right? Don't commit adultery. What's the flip side of that? Be faithful to your spouse, right? Husbands to your wives, wives to your husband. According to the seventh commandment, no one, no one is allowed to have sex with any married person except his or her spouse, and no married person is allowed to have sex with anyone other than his or her spouse. Adultery was known in the ancient world as the great sin. It was the great sin. Why? Why? Marriage is foundational to the creation order and to human society. Stuart goes on to say, Husbands and wives can hardly function fully as one flesh if they do not trust each other. Sexual relations are the virtual seal of a marriage covenant, and adultery betrays the emotional, psychological intimacy that specially connects adult men and women within marriage. The primary purpose of the seventh commandment is to safeguard marriage. Now, why is this so important? Why is this so important? Because, as we've seen already, God's glory is at the heart of marriage. God's glory and the gospel are at stake. Amen? The gravity of this particular sin is evidenced by its consequences. Now, in the case of fornication, which is sex outside of marriage, marriage or money had to be offered. In the case of adultery... Death. It's pretty serious, right? You commit adultery under the old covenant, and what happens? Death. Death. This is serious business. Now, this is really cool, okay? Now, this is, please get this. This is going to rock your world. What's interesting is that the Hebrew verb used for adultery, na'af, is the same verb used for idolatry. What does that mean? What's idolatry? Worshiping something in place of God, right? The Hebrew brings God and marriage together, meaning the relationship of the one affects the relationship of the other. If we're not being faithful to our spouse, then we're not being faithful to our God. We are committing an idolatry of sorts. Now, if adultery is marital unfaithfulness 
Where does it start? Number four, what is at the heart of the seventh commandment? Where does adultery start, I wonder? Mark 7, 20 to 23. This is Jesus. He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, porneia, which is sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. How does the Heidelberg Catechism address the Seventh Commandment? This is helpful. This was a teaching tool back in the day. It's still a good teaching tool. What does the Seventh Commandment teach? Here's the answer. God forbids all unchaste actions, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever may excite another person to them. What Scripture teaches, and this is important, what Scripture teaches is that the application of this particular commandment is broader than we, most, we might first think. I mean, again, like murder, you're thinking, I, I'm, I think I'm doing pretty well with the sixth. I've never killed anybody, but have you with your thoughts and words? And maybe in a similar fashion, you come this morning, and you're like, I've never been unfaithful to my wife, but have you? Are you sure about that? Adultery typically doesn't happen in a day. It starts where? In the, starts in the heart. And there are multiple small steps that lead up to it. Philip Graham Ryken, this is a great quote. He notes, most adulterous relationships don't start with sex. They start with inappropriate intimacy. The seventh commandment thus forbids, now listen to this, a man to flirt, a married man, by the way. The seventh commandment thus forbids a married man to flirt with a woman who is not his wife, or a single man to get close to someone else's wife. In order to forestall temptation, a certain social distance needs to be maintained. The commandment also forbids a woman to seek emotional support from some other man, whether at work, at church, or an internet chat room. To put things more positively, he says, the seventh commandment requires husbands and wives to nurture their love for one another emotionally and spiritually as well as sexually. This is helpful for better understanding how Jesus transforms the seventh commandment. He doesn't replace it, by the way, but rather he delves into the heart of it. And you see this in Matthew 5, 27 to 28. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's possible. It's possible that until this point, you thought you were doing relatively well with the seventh commandment. Let's not deceive ourselves. Amen? Let's not deceive ourselves. The battle against sin is waged where? It's waged in the heart. As we just saw in Mark 7, 20 to 23, adultery starts in the heart. It's committed every time a husband looks lustfully at his computer screen or looks lustfully at another woman in the grocery line. 
It's committed every time a wife fantasizes about some other man. Again, adultery is not a victimless crime. Have you ever heard of secret sins? I know we've all committed them, right? Nobody's watching. Nobody sees this. This this could, I mean, here's the lie we buy into. This isn't going to hurt anyone. When we engage in secret sins, whether sins of the heart or sins behind closed doors, we deceive ourselves into thinking, who could this hurt? Nobody knows. First, it's a crime against two, because who knows? Who's always watching? God. It's a crime against God. The Lord sees all, and all sin is an offense against a holy and just God. And we know that sexual sin leaves a whole host of destruction in its wake. First, there's the Lord. All sin is first and foremost against Him. Then there's our own body. When we sin sexually, we sin against our own body. Next, there's the partner in the affair. Then there's our spouse. And finally, there's the spouse of the partner, the other guilty party involved. How dare we say adultery is not a victimless crime or is a victimless crime? (laughs) How many have been affected by a husband or wife's unfaithfulness? Now, if you're struggling here today, listen, if you're struggling here today, or you find yourself right now headed down a dangerous path, confess your sin and repent. This sin, the sin of adultery, like all sin, has the ability to destroy you and those around you. Let's end with some good news. (laughs) What good news does the gospel have to offer in light of the seventh commandment? Number five, how does the gospel speak to adultery? How does the gospel speak to adultery? If you have committed adultery, if you have committed adultery, if you've been unfaithful in your marriage, both mentally and or physically, there's hope. Amen? There's hope. Now listen to Paul here. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. There's good news for sinners like us. Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now you're thinking, Chris, where's the good news? Let's keep listening. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. You were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen! Right? Wake up! What gloriously refreshing news! Those previously identified as adulterers and sexually immoral, when they turned from their sin and trust in Jesus, were washed and made new. God graciously saved them and brought them into a saving relationship with himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. In Christ there is forgiveness. In Christ there is power to turn from sin. If you're a believer already, and you've fallen into sexual sin, there's hope. Repent and turn to Jesus. Repent and turn to Jesus. 
Thanks be to God for the gospel that provides both forgiveness and transformation. By the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Spirit, we have the power. We have the power to follow Jesus and obey His word. For believers, the seventh commandment serves as a warning. It is a gracious warning to guard our hearts and minds and to intentionally invest in our marriages. Amen? So be on guard and invest. And let us not forget the purpose of marriage, and for all things for that matter, which is to glorify God. Now what does the gospel teach us here? What does the gospel teach us? Number one, the gospel teaches us that there is forgiveness in Jesus. There's forgiveness. Number two, the gospel teaches us that there is new power in Jesus for holy living. And number three, now don't forget this. Oh, the gospel teaches us that Jesus is our faithful bridegroom. The one who was completely faithful to God the Father on our behalf. Somebody say amen. And not only that, but Jesus, as our bridegroom, is completely faithful to his bride, to his church, to us. John 13, 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. You see, all of us have committed adultery. Do you realize that? Married and unmarried alike. You're thinking, Chris, how does that work? We'll start with husbands and wives. Husbands and wives have all been unfaithful in their hearts. But I'm talking here about something else. I'm talking here about spiritual adultery. The spiritual adultery that marks all of mankind. All of us have committed adultery. All of us. We have rejected our creator for the creation. We have committed adultery against the Lord God. It's true. All of us have. All of us have committed spiritual adultery. You know, a whole book in God's word is dedicated to this theme. The book of Hosea. I mean, think about Hosea's marriage. The prophet Hosea, his marriage to Gomer, who was essentially a prostitute, functioned as a living lesson for Israel to bring to light their unfaithfulness to the Lord. But that's all of us, right? We're all that way. All of us have committed adultery against the Lord. But Jesus is the faithful bridegroom, the one who lived the life we could not live and died the death in our place that we deserve. And then he was raised victoriously. He's alive and he's king. And in him there is forgiveness and there's power for godly living. He is faithful to his father. He is faithful to his bride, the church. Christ, if you're taking notes, this is worth writing down. Christ has performed fidelity at both the vertical and horizontal levels for us. Amen? He's been faithful at both the vertical and the horizontal for us. So run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Well, I'm going to conclude with some application. Quickly, five practice steps here. Number one, this is in your notes. Confess sin to the Lord, your spouse, and a fellow believer. Confess sin to the Lord, your spouse, and a fellow believer. The worst thing you can do 
the worst thing you can do is to refuse to confess your sin. Because this is a refusal to obey the Lord and to lean into one of his gracious resources, which is the church. Right? We confess to the Lord. We confess to those that we've sinned against. And it's good to confess to fellow believers. If you've been unfaithful to your spouse, mentally, visually, or physically, then confess it. Turn from it. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Amen? James 5, 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Number two, establish accountability. Establish accountability. Galatians 6, 1 and 2, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. If you struggle with pornography, men or women, get Covenant Eyes. Covenant Eyes is a software. And what it does is it invites a fellow believer. And what's going to happen is, if on your smart devices you look at something you shouldn't look at, they're going to get an email. They're going to know, and they're going to call you, and they're going to pray with you, and they're going to challenge you with God's word. I'm, I'm an accountability partner through Covenant Eyes with many men right now. Praise God for that. Amen? These brothers realize, I need accountability. I need help. I want help. And so that's one thing you can do, but I'd say go beyond that. Find someone of the same sex, so men with men, women with women, and invite them to hold you accountable. Say, will you meet with me weekly? Can we pray together? Can we look at scripture together? And can you ask me some hard questions? And I promise I'll be honest, but I need accountability. I need it. We need our Lord's gracious resources to fight sin. And this includes the local church. How dare we not make use of God's resources? Amen? He gives us each other to fight sin and run the race. So, Establish accountability with the fellow believer. Number three, memorize God's word. Memorize God's word and meditate on the gospel. Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. Why did the psalmist hide God's word, memorize God's word, in order that he might not sin against the Lord? Colossians 3, 1-3, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not things that are on earth, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Recall Jesus' own approach to temptation in Matthew 4. Every time the devil sought to tempt him, what did Jesus do? What did he reach for? His sword. And what was that? The Word of God. Jesus was armed with the word of God. Take up your sword. Don't you dare go into battle unarmed. Number four, take extreme measures. Now, what does that mean? In Mark 9, 43, Jesus says, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Whoa. Oh, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. I was at a pastor's conference back in, this was 2011 in Dallas, 
and uh, probably 3,000 men gathered together, and one of the keynote speakers gets up, and this is how he began his sermon on 1 Corinthians 16. He said, men, I don't have a tablet, iPad. I I don't have a smartphone. And we're like, where are you going, dude? Like, okay, cool. He goes, because I'm not strong enough, and I care more about personal holiness than having the latest and greatest technology. And I said, whoa, bro. I think I even said, get it, bro. Maybe I didn't. I should have. But I was like, man, thank you for your transparency. Like, this, he's not saying he's struggling with porn. He's just saying, I know I'm not strong enough, and I care more about holiness. And so that was an extreme measure. Got the old school flip phone, and no, I don't need it. Holiness is more important. Let me give you a couple of examples. If you've gotten too close to someone of the opposite sex at work that you're not married to, in that relationship now. Just cut it off, okay? If you're using your smartphone to look at pornography, get rid of it. You don't need it. I promise you, you can survive without it. Number five. The last application, practice step. If married, then make love often. I'm not trying to be indelicate here, but biblical. I really am. I'm not, I'm not trying to be indelicate. I'm really trying to be biblical. Don't deprive one another. This is Paul. This is 1 Corinthians 7, 5. What does he say? Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. What's he talking about there? Making love. Why? So that. Here's the purpose. If you write in your Bible, put PC, purpose clause, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Sexual union is a celebration of marriage. I was hoping a guy would say amen, but it's okay. It is a covenant renewal act. Furthermore, sexual gratification is a gift from God to be enjoyed in marriage for the glory of God. Amen? All things for his glory. It is a gift to be enjoyed for his glory. Now, according to 1 Corinthians 7, 5, sex in the context of marriage is related to our sanctification. It is, listen, it is a gracious, God-ordained means for helping believers overcome sexual temptation to sin, the sin of adultery. The sin of pornography, the sin of sexual fantasizing. And yet, I got to end here, and then I'm going to pray. Marriage is not the end-all, be-all. It can't be. If you're looking to marriage for ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment, then you will be what? You're going to be disappointed. You're going to be let down. Because your spouse cannot be your messiah. That's idolatry. Your spouse cannot be your Messiah. Only Christ, now say it with me, only Christ. That's all you had to say. But only, I mean, every Sunday we should say that when we gather. Only Christ, only Christ can meet our greatest need. Only Christ can eternally satisfy our souls. Only Christ can give us forgiveness, eternal life, and eternal joy. Amen? Now, marriage is to be enjoyed. Yes, it is a gift from God to be enjoyed for His glory, but marriage is temporary. Marriage is a pointer. 
It is merely a pointer to the greater union between Christ and his bride, the church. Honor your marriage. Believers, honor your marriage and see your marriage as an opportunity to showcase the gospel. And if you've not trusted in Jesus, the faithful bridegroom, the one who was faithful vertically and horizontally, the one who lived the life we could not live, and the one who died for sinners like us to bring us back into fellowship with God, which is the ultimate union. Amen? You will never know joy until you know that union. And the only way to enjoy that union is to trust in Christ. And listen to this. You will never, never have the marriage the Lord wants you to have until you have Jesus as Lord of your life and Lord of your marriage. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glorious gift of marriage to be enjoyed for your honor and your renown. Father, I want to pray right now for our husbands in this room. Help them by your grace and by your power to love their wives as Christ, you love the church. And Father, I pray, we pray together. Church, pray with me. Father, we pray if there are anyone, any husbands or wives who are right now in sin, whether it's a a physical adulterous affair, a pattern of pornography, fantasizing, inappropriate relationships, Father, I pray that you would move many to confess, repent, and trust in and treasure Jesus. Father, I pray for healing in our marriages. We pray, Father, that every marriage represented in this place would seek to put the glorious gospel and the triune God on display. Bless our marriages. Help us to do marriage well. Help us to be selfless. Help us to seek your glory. Father, again, we thank you for your grace. And we thank you for our faithful bridegroom, Jesus, who is faithful both vertically and horizontally in our place for our salvation. Jesus, you are king. And I pray that this sermon and your word would move us to long for our eternal union with you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.